0: You saw a lot of news stories about how social media was changing society, and we also saw a lot of polling data from the White House about how Facebook was taking over as the number one source of news in America. So the role of social media broadly really solidified, in part because of the 2012 campaign, this massive cultural force that could really change society and change the world.
1: Welcome to the Social Complex podcast where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. There is no question about the importance and impact and influence of social media in our political sphere. Each election season since 2008 has had a hallmark reputation when it comes to how social media influenced said presidential election and we're heading into what very well may be our most dramatic political season yet in 2024 so what's that going to look like and what can we learn from past election seasons to really get a better idea about what we're getting into And there is no one better to join me for this conversation than a man behind that of Barack Obama's Twitter. Caleb Gardner, his career has been driven by curiosity and focused on change. Caleb led one of the largest digital programs in existence, including the most followed Twitter account in the world, at Barack Obama. But his decades of experience in change leadership, digital innovation, and social impact don't just include work in government and politics. Now, as the co-founder and managing partner of 18 Coffees, an innovation consulting firm, Caleb helps businesses with a mission to change the world get a foothold in the future, using his professional experience to solve impossible problems and bring new ideas to life. His new book, No Point B Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected Radically Conscious Economy is out in all major bookstores. Caleb and I had a blast today. We got into so many philosophical questions around the nature of social media, its implications on societal perspectives and perceptions when it comes to political climates and really how the social media and the voice that these digital platforms give to candidates and to constituents really has just changed the landscape of how we are running election seasons and presidential terms. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. I believe firmly that no matter which side of the political spectrum that you are on, there's a ton of value in this episode and a lot of introspection to be had. So without further ado, let's get into it. To kick it all off, uh, I have to ask a personal question about you, Caleb. What was your first social media channel?
0: Ooh. I mean, if we're defining social media, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define it. Because I definitely had a MySpace page back in college. Before that, when I was in high school, I had a GeoCities page, you know, like I'm, I'm very much oh. dating myself right now. But, you know, I think it, I think it does depend on what your definition of social is, because, you know, when I was back in the day creating content and, you know, on in online forums and on AOL chat rooms, it was very social mediums. But I think in terms of what we define it as now, like the big you know, platforms that would probably be Facebook back when I mean, I was in in college when Facebook was only on college campuses and it felt like this new cool thing kind of wild to think about now.
1: I know you were a part of the elite crew at that time. You had to have your college ID to get onto it and all the good Exactly. Stuff.
0: I, that, that is one of the benefits I think of being that like micro generation they call exennials or geriatric millennials or however you want to define it is like, we, we got the best of both worlds. Like we remember the world pre-internet, But we also grew up and were digitally native because all the great things that we know now kind of came when we were coming of age. So we learned with them, you know.
1: Absolutely. So how did you even stumble into the land of politics? Because that just, you know, career wise, being in that position, I've got to know what it was like to be a digitally native audience in a, you know, political world itself can be a little bit. Dated a little bit older, sure, uh, and sometimes slower to adapt. But you were kind of in the thick of the adoption of digital and politics at the same time.
0: Yeah, the po- political world being slow to adapt—maybe the understatement of the century. Um, <laughs> I mean, you—the age, the average age of our people in Congress—is like something in the '60s. Like it's kind of insane. So. I was a history major when i when i was in college and was and took a class called the history of the u.s presidency and you know focused a lot of my um studies on american history and so my interest in it really stemmed from that i i think that my years studying history really defined my political awakening you know like i was kind of A de facto part of my own culture growing up and hadn't really thought about it and once I started kind of critiquing it and deconstructing it for myself my political belief started to take shape and combine that with this big picture where is the world going you know critical analysis that being a history major gives you I think that it wasn't too long after that, that you know, I'm using the Facebook account I got in college, and it's starting to explode. And there's the advent of YouTube. There's the advent of Twitter. It's not hard to draw a direct connection between, oh wow, the the power and potential of these platforms to really change the trajectory of our world, from everything from you know how individual people interact with companies and the power shifting back to individual consumers to collectively, we can change, we can have a voice and start to, you know, change our world. You know, I saw a lot of that coming early on and really leaned into digital in my career. And, but I was really coming at it more from the private sector side. Like I worked at Edelman, the, the large PR firm back when they were first creating a digital division. And, you know, we were asking fortune 100 companies to open Facebook pages, which is kind of a wild thing to think about now. But back then it was like the forefront of media now I'd probably try to tell them not to, but that's a whole whole other, <laughs> whole other conversation. But we just serendipitously intersected. I, I live in Chicago and both Obama campaigns were based out of Chicago. So we were in the Obama's backyards and the talent we were exchanging between our firm and the campaign, you know, I, I knew people had run ads. I knew people who had done social. I knew people who were in tech between us and like, seriously, people who came from the 08 campaign went to the 12 campaign. Like we just, I was in the right place at the right time to really get to know a lot of those folks. And so that was really, you know, how I got to marry that passion for history and big picture thinking and like trying to shape where the world was going with actual political work in a day to day basis.
1: So being, you know, more of a history buff, what was your perception at that time with these campaigns as they were happening in these elections that were happening and playing out in real time online in a way that we just don't have a playbook for. Like we didn't have this medium. You know, was there any parallels in history that you looked at saying like, wow, this is going to completely shift how it's being done in the future, or this is kind of, you know, what we can glean from the past as far as this specific medium, how impactful it can be in an election?
0: Yeah. I mean, the only parallel that I can think of is the TV debates between Nixon and Kennedy and how that medium really shifted the direction of that campaign. I think there was parallels in the 60s with the with that campaign, but I think you could see early on inklings of how the internet was going to change politics, like you saw the Dean campaign experiment with some of the things that the Obama campaign in 08 really started to perfect, like email uh, fundraising and social media. So, I think the elements were there I just think they got adopted in in 08 and then 12 and then 16. And then, you know, now it's just kind of the way that we do business and not only on the presidential level, but pretty much with every campaign. But could we have predicted back then how much of an amazing, terrifying shift social would do to politics? I don't know. I think all the elements were there and those of us working in this space definitely saw the potential.
1: So let's talk about that that moment though when you're looking at investing in one of these new channels that has emerged and is, you know, gaining popularity, but you don't really know how long it's gonna be in existence, how much traction it's actually going to pick up. How do those decisions happen when it comes to which platforms to invest a presence in on and you know the validation behind the manpower that it takes to run? A campaign like that on each channel
0: yeah do you mean in politics specifically
1: i'd say politics specifically
0: i mean broader speaking not in a political campaign i think you have to decide when to jump into the zeitgeist in a way that you don't always have measurable results for and i think that's hard because it really depends on the resources that the team is bringing to bear but when you talk about an electoral campaign you have a very limited time frame with which to make an impact, and I think that in general, the digital people that I have worked with on campaigns tend to just, depending on again, depending on the resources of the campaign. Some campaigns are pretty small, and it's very hard to do a lot of things well. But especially for a bigger campaign, the risk reward is very much tipped in the favor of let's just try, because we have a very le- time as the one unrenewable resource in a campaign. We have an end date where everything just stops, right? And so, why not try to see if we can get some added value impact from a new social platform that is unproven, assuming that we have the resources to do it well, which bigger campaigns typically do. So, I think that minuscule time frame which, you know, if you think about if you think about a presidential campaign, by the time the primaries end, you have what? 6 months of real hardcore, full, sorry if I can say this on a podcast, balls to the wall kind of effort, <laughs> you know, like to try to get your person in office before the other person does. Like it's, it's we are just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what works. So I think the risk reward ratio pretty heavily falls in the like, let's try. If it seems like it's gaining steam, if it seems like this is where our voters are, if it seems like it's moving in a direction that is gonna be beneficial to us, why not try?
1: And I feel like that's something that, you know, President Obama really did well in 2008 was that he did, you know, lean in a little bit heavier into social media versus mm-hmm. his opponent, McCain, who just didn't really, you know, see it as a resource. And that was it. What was his terminology? What's the what's the name that people call Obama? It's like the the social media president or like the first social media president.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So uh, to be able to he, get that that name is wild.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's weird to think about now, but when he took office in 08, there were no White House Twitter accounts or, you know, like infrastructure for communicating from the government to the, you know, everyone else like that did not exist before he took office. He kind of took a lot of that energy from the campaign that worked so well and it was painful to be honest like i was not part of the obama work back then but I know, I know a lot of people who were and setting up that infrastructure and figuring out how do we take all this energy from this electoral side and, and make it into a government entity was really tough because of telecom laws because of the staff turnover like from the campaign into the white house because for lots of reasons it was it was very hard to pull off
1: so when it comes to the history of different elections, let's let's focus mainly on presidential right now, since that I think can be kind of the, the earmark and hallmarks of four years and digital being just bananas and yeah. how much can change. What are some of the key differences among I would say from two thousand eight up till what we're seeing today with elections as far as like the reputation that each election has had when it comes to social media?
0: Oh, God, yes, so many different things. I mean, I think that in 2008, the use of social at all was innovative. You know, like, I I still remember when we, the the Barack Obama Twitter account followed something like 600,000 people because following back was like a polite thing to do in the early days of Twitter, right? Like, now it seems almost quaint, but that's one of the reasons why, I think to this day, the account still follows something like 600,000 people. I'm actually looking it up right now. Yep, I 558,000. Right. So a couple of the bots have been removed, but still around that range. And one of the reasons is that if you got in early, if you were one of the earliest Twitter adopters, that follow from Obama is now like a badge of honor, you know? So I think the use of it at all in 08 was innovative. I think in 12... They really perfected it and personalized him. I think that he spoke from a lot more of a first-person point of view in 08. In 12, you had the Dash BO that really said, like, this is coming from the president. And they operationalized it in a way that really showed that there was a team behind it thinking critically. And you had, to your point about experimenting, you had the Barack Obama Tumblr account. They spread themselves a lot more over the internet in terms of the things they tried with content and then in 2020 no 2016 oh look at me i'm just skipping elections in 2016 you had the trump campaign take that personalization on social to its logical conclusion where he just managed it himself for better for worse right and and really his voice became the dominant voice on social on Twitter especially but really across the internet right in a way that drove the news cycle like we had never seen before and I say the logical conclusion like we had between 2012 and 2016 you saw the Arab Spring you saw you saw lots of um news Arab Spring might have been 2011 but it was right around then like you saw a lot of news stories about how social media was changing society and we also saw a lot of polling data from the White House about how Facebook was taking over as the number one source of news in America. So the role of social media broadly really solidified, in part because of the 2012 campaign, this massive cultural force that could really change society and change the world. And so to have a president kind of, I mean, let's be honest, shamelessly use it to, you know, put his whole ego and id out on display on social at the same time as we're realizing that social increases mental health problems, increases bullying. We're realizing that a lot of the, the as it became mainstream, a lot of the guardrails that we have in mainstream society around behavior don't necessarily apply to the internet. Like we're seeing those growing pains around social media around the same time. That really defined the 2016 campaign. And I think by the time you get to 2012, you're not only seeing Trump try to run that same playbook, but I think you're seeing... Biden almost positioned himself as the opposite of Trump in the way that he uses his account a lot more professionally and basically trying to be a lot less drama. I think you see the pendulum try to swing back a little bit to like, can I actually be a professional president and someone that you can be proud to have in office and not worry about what I'm going to be tweeting? So they had a really interesting challenge, I think, in 2020 that they're going to have to repeat in 2024. Is like finding that sweet spot between how do we use content and use platforms And use things like TikTok, especially in 2024, to get our message out and to be effective and to make everyone feel great about voting for Joe Biden when we have, you know, Trump coming out and trying to repeat his model as well.
1: Yeah. And I think that in the in-between during each of those, you know, four-year periods, In 2012, you know, social media was really starting to emerge with ads and and really highly targeted amounts of data. 2016 happened and everyone's like, whoa, I think in two fronts, one, which was the amount of targeted news that could be be hitting you and Cambridge Analytica scandal and how, how people just saw all of the realization about how much data is being used, but then simultaneously, It also came out about how algorithms were so impactful and important because it was like people were shocked that Trump won because their news feeds were all pro-Hillary. And so because of the algorithms, they were not receiving the two-sided approach. So there was almost like you had the adoption of digital news as being the core truth. To this question of like, whoa, am I not getting the full scope and the full picture? And then that just unleashed an entire idea around what is the true public sentiment versus, you know, my own little bubble. And then in 2020, you had election fraud questions and people just coming out of the woodworks and like almost mirroring you know, where I would, I would go as far to say is Trump was kind of the first person in an executive power position that really came off as unhinged to a degree. And I feel like because there had been that buffer for so long, all of a sudden it was just like the gloves are off in 2020 and it was chaos.
0: Yeah, it was chaos. And before we had the questions about TikTok and internet safety and the you know, the video is really important in 2020. It's so much more important now. It was chaos before we had generative AI and, you know, all of these deep fakes that we could create. Deep fakes were around in 2020, but I think that they're so much easier to make now than they were then. Oh. So there's a lot of authentication, trust and safety issues that we will have in 2024 that were just rearing their ugly head in 2020, combined with the dismantling of a lot of trust and safety teams at the social media platforms including Twitter but also we've seen layoffs at Meta we've seen layoffs you know across the tech sector and one of the places that they have hit are the teams that are supposed to help us define what is real and what's not real so it's going to be a wild ride the next 2 years i think i mean just recently we saw verified twitter users sharing images of explosions near the pentagon that it turned out were generated by ai and it took us a long time to know that that wasn't the truth right yeah so i i don't know what's going to happen but it's we're in a really precarious place right now i think
1: yeah let's let's talk about what we're what we're looking at with 2024 you know based on this in between you know during this session where do you see, you know, kind of the pros and the cons, but also just the general consensus? What do you think the reputation for 2024 is going to end up being from a political standpoint on social?
0: What are we going to remember the 2024 election as? Yep. yep. That's such a good question.
1: Get your crystal t- ball out.
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, what role TikTok plays and... Did the national security concerns that our elected officials are throwing up right now end up playing a part or not? And then the other one is, what role does generative AI play? Both in supporting campaign efforts, like in making the campaigns themselves much more efficient and fast moving, but also in terms of that defining what is real and what is not question. And did this become the genie coming out of the bottle in terms of us? Not even knowing how to believe what we're seeing with our own eyes. I don't know. Like that those are the two big, big outstanding questions for me. I think the things that we know are going to be the case is that video on TikTok, on Instagram Reels is huge right now and that the platforms are gonna have to put a big emphasis on that. I think that we know <laughs> that Twitter is much more right wing now than it was just a few years ago with the takeover of Elon Musk and his propensity to platform people like Tucker Carlson. And just, you know, as we're recording this, Ron DeSantis, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's funny, the tech issues didn't work out great for him, but Musk's like embrace of those kinds of figures is turning the audience on Twitter a lot more right wing. And we, you know, we saw that coming a year ago. And so there are certain things that we know are going to, be the basis of how we operate in a social environment going into 2024. And then there's scary things like AI where we don't really know the impact yet. But I think that these are the kind of considerations when you're building up for a 2024 campaign that you're gonna have to have to think about and, and resource against. And really that's the thing that's gonna be hardest, I think, is we have more platforms than ever that we have to kind of have a presence on. The content burden, Meaning like how much content we have to produce of what different kinds of variety, it's much more complicated now than it was when I was in politics. I mean the majority of our content was text and images. Now we'd have to do text, images, video. Requires a lot more like candidate time to get really quality video. There's a lot of different kinds of skill sets and different kinds of on-site, you know, material that you need that you just didn't need back then. So it's a much more complicated media environment that you really are going to have to, you know, test and learn along the way.
1: This is potentially a crazy idea, but also maybe not crazy. So deep fakes in general are always looked at in a negative light, generally. But theoretically, when you talk about needing candidate time, could and is there some opportunity to <laughs> you see where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah. To I do. lean in to some of this AI that could help amplify some of this time restriction because time is a very limited resource, especially within a candidate. So I'm yeah. just I'm curious. I mean, the flip side of the coin, the, the light side of the moon.
0: <laughs> I I mean, I think that there are ways that the, the campaigns are going to use AI that might make this label the ai election however i don't think that deep fakes of the candidate are going to be <laughs> the way to do that i think it just creates more i mean honestly like deep fakes in any kind of campaign uh, video or campaign material not just deep fakes in terms of how we d- define that but generative ai in general is going to be i think more risk than reward for at least the Democratic side, I think the Republican side's already leaning into it. Like one of their response videos to Biden's announcement, they proudly announced was made by AI, I think, to try to get, you know, some of that newsworthiness out of it.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't disagree with you that this very well could be known as the AI election. It is a little bit scary, uh, knowing where we're headed, but
0: yeah all is well in the world again i don't i don't know that it needs to be a bad thing like i said it could be that the the campaigns come up with super creative ways to make their you know content production process more efficient to you know connect with people and distribute that organizing that every presidential campaign has to do in a more efficient way like there could be some really creative uses of it that are aren't just the scary ones so let's let's hope for that outcome.
1: <laughs> I like that. With TikTok, because that does come up, it's a lot right now, especially with Montana ban on the docket and then also looking at it from a national security standpoint, being banned from government devices. I mean, that has to throw a wrench in TikTok becoming a viable platform for candidates to be using in an election, wouldn't you think?
0: Well, the candidates actually have... They're teams that are developed as part of their campaign that are hired by the campaign entity. And then they have, if you are sitting in office like Biden is, they, he will have his government staff on kind of a whole separate infrastructure. So it will be the campaign people using TikTok, if at all, and you know the government people who are limited from doing that. It won't really matter that much. But the one area where it will matter is, do you use TikTok? to get video of Biden in the White House looking presidential? And do people throw up national security concerns about that? Like, I honestly don't know.
1: Yeah, because that would be the question, which is, if you're, you know, thinking about banning it, why would you be on it? But then at the same time, and the flip side of that is, aside from the candidate itself and and their own campaign, you also have your constituents that are producing content on your behalf, you know, more of that organic, robust content that's being shared on the platforms, whether exactly. or not you're there. So, you know, I I'd, I'd be curious to see the perspective on do you think TikTok's going to be a part of it, or do you think it's a not really gonna be a play that many candidates, if any, are gonna really lean into?
0: I think it has to be a part of it. I think I think it's to be determined to what level, about what kind of content, what kind of videos, what works. But if if it is a Trump Biden matchup, like we are expecting another Trump Biden matchup, these are two people who are desperate to look hip, like young, you know, like desperate to connect <laughs> with a younger audience and make it seem like they're the ones that understand. You know what I mean? Like these would be again one of the matchups of some of the oldest people who've ever run for president slash been president. So how they use a medium that is known for connecting with Gen Z, Gen Alpha, and above, I should say, but, you know, very, very young people is to be determined. And the one who really gets it right, I think, has a lot of value for getting those people out to the polls.
1: I'm curious from your perspective as, you know, a strategist, when you're looking at Gen Z in particular, I feel like collectively as a generation, they're, they're, bs meter is a little bit more sensitive than maybe historical you know (laughs) uh uh, generations but i'd be curious to hear your perspective as far as you know showing up on tiktok as a candidate you'd have to do it in a really authentic true to yourself way otherwise you're going to kind of come off as like how do you do fellow kids like you know so (laughs) yes the the bs favorite I know, right? (laughs) The um, the BS meter is very strong with Gen Z. So, how are these candidates that I'm sorry are are fairly old? How are they going to be able to show up on these platforms in a native way that's not going to give some, you know, major ick factor, for lack of a better word?
0: You're touching on one of the essential challenges, especially for video on social, because I think that there's a there's a level of distance you can maintain on something like Facebook and Twitter again that are very text-driven, can be written very matter-of-factly, can include CTAs to you know go back to the website, to donate, to take other actions. You have more options. Whereas video, you have to get super creative with what you can do without the candidate in terms of creativity around graphics and such and like storytelling. And then where you choose to use the candidate versus not use the candidate. And when you choose to use the candidate, to your point about the ick factor you have to figure out how to display them in a way that comes off as authentic fun self-deprecating but also genuine and presidential it's a tough needle to thread i'm not going to lie i mean i think that i think that in general when we think about authenticity we're often asking for charisma you know like we we say we want we want authenticity we want authenticity and i remember back when i worked in politics i was like you don't you don't want the authentic version of these politicians like the authentic version of them again average age of our congress people is in the 60s like if it'd be like getting the authentic version of your grandma like endearing but not something you're going to want to follow day to day on social what you do want is for them to be charismatic and interesting and come off as genuine even if it's a little even if it's just a little staged right yeah. So that that's really the creative problem here is like, how do you use the candidate in a way that really, you know, makes them seem like someone that is interesting and, and presidential? I think we had an easier I mean, just going to be honest, we had an easier time of that with President Obama because he is naturally charismatic. He was somewhat young, especially compared to these two candidates. And he was just cool. People naturally wanted to, you know, follow Obama. It wasn't hard for us. Um, I think it's a little harder with, uh, you know, these two.
1: Yeah, no, I I would agree with that. I I think everybody would be happy to have a beer with Barack Obama. And I can't say the same. about.
0: (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Joe Biden would be awesome to take a road trip with. That's where I'd want to really he'd it have be some good
1: stories.
0: That's what I'm saying. He would tell you really good stories. He'd be, he'd be very into the car you were driving. he would be wearing his aviators. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be awesome.
1: It would be a whole vibe. I've got to ask <laughs> if president Obama had a TikTok, like if it, if it had existed back in 2016, what kind of content would have been produced on it? Theoretically.
0: Oh, see, uh, assuming that we had access to him in the White House, this is always the hard thing because you want to balance the "I'm doing the job of president" with "I'm talking about," you know, the issues. And so there was some distance again we had to maintain between his accounts and him, who was actually doing the job of being president, and we didn't have access to all the time. But I would imagine that it would be some combination of direct to camera video, you know, appeals to people. Some funny things that are just like, he did this really great like BuzzFeed video about healthcare, you know, back in the day where he was like, I very, very distinctly remember him like looking in the mirror and trying on sunglasses and like trying to put a bigger cookie that was too big into a glass of milk and then being like, thanks, Obama, you know, like self deprecating things like that. So some things like that, I think you'd have clips of him speaking, of course, like just just like you would with anyone trying to look presidential, you'd want like clips of their speeches. Um, and again, I feel like we had a great access to an amazing speaker. So we had a lot of breathing room for Obama's speeches. So, you know, some combination of, I, I, think, I would think of it almost like a spectrum, like super presidential on one side and very serious. And then the other side, fun, authentic. You know, more if brand building, if you want to call that in terms of the person, like getting to know the person.
1: I think there is a lot too within the the parallels between politicians and executives at corporations or more of the private sector when you're sure. looking at how companies are, you know, showing up and whatnot. Granted, instead of the product or the service being the hero, the candidate is the hero. But what lessons can executives at corporations, you know, who are trying to really make a name for themselves, but also lead from a a place of, I I like your comparison of charisma, maybe even a little bit more than authenticity, but from someone who is trying to lead with more charisma, authenticity, you know, what are some parallels and, and lessons that can be gleaned from the presidential election style approach? Yeah.
0: I think that one that is very applicable for today is that I think politicians, obviously, by nature of what they do, have to talk about the issues, whether or not it makes someone angry, sometimes intentionally, let's be honest, sometimes intentionally to make someone angry. But I think they have to lean into the hardest issues in our public sphere in a way that CEOs are often reluctant to do, and in a way that I've seen CEOs you know, really step in it in terms of trying to have it both ways, trying to not be seen as quote unquote political, but actually it, it's not even really about the politics. Like they, they're so hesitant to step into any controversy that they come off looking weak, looking calculated, looking very inauthentic. And again, politicians by nature of what they do just kind of have to be in it at all times. CEOs don't need to do that at all, but they don't need to also like try to have it both ways at all time and come off looking unprincipled. And I think that's what I would say is like, don't be afraid to lean into things where your values and your company's values, especially very much align with this issue. And someone might come off and call it political or push back but you need to be able to lead from a place of values and lead from a place of principle. And if you haven't decided what those values and principles are, that's kind of the first step. Like maybe we just haven't had that conversation. And so if we can start with that, then I would say worry less about what's gonna come off as quote unquote political and worry more about, is this the right decision based on what we have said we value as a company that's aligned with our employees, that's aligned with our shareholders, that's aligned with our our um, supply chain and you know the the industry that we're in. Um, if we can do that, then that's the kind of first step. And then beyond that, it's about engaging, being authentic, and balancing that same line of where I want to look like a leader versus where I want to look like a person. It's a hard needle to thread. I think that's why a lot of CEOs have teams of people behind them trying to help them with that. I do think that the move toward people handling their social media accounts themselves without that kind of oversight in general with a few exceptions has not really made the leaders come off that great i mean i think that in 2016 you saw trump pioneer this model of super authenticity again super authenticity some would argue charismatic but not necessarily great for his brand it was great for his brand with one part of the country and not great for the rest. And as a result, he's hit a bit of a ceiling. And now you've seen people like Elon Musk take that model and run with it. You've seen Jeff Bezos, to some extent, take that model and run with it. And it makes them look very, to, again, creates a fan base, but doesn't necessarily make them look like a leader. And yeah. I think that you, you end up not being able to, to marry those two things very well.
1: I'm curious too, what is the feedback loop? Because people will look at you know, follower count as far as like, wow, you have all these followers or You've, you're getting all this traction and all this chatter. And so to a degree, some of these more divisive accounts or some of these more unhinged approaches are getting a lot of chatter. They're getting a lot of talk. And the question is, is that their, is that their end game? You know, are they, are they looking at their analysis and saying, we're hitting the mark? You know, what are some of those metrics that you've seen these executives or leaders really look at as far as success in their eyes?
0: So the, the trap that a lot of people get into, and this isn't just with running a personal account, running a CEO's account, or even running a politician's account is that they think growth is a goal in and of itself. They think engagement, likes, shares, whatever, is a goal in and of itself. When actually, if we're gonna grow an account, we should be growing it for a reason. We should be, There should be a goal there beyond just the attention itself. And I think the ego trip that we get into about how many followers we have, how much engagement, how many of these vanity metrics we're getting We've been cautioning against that as digital strategists for 15 years. And we are still getting trapped in these vanity metrics. And I think when you have someone with an ego, again, I'm looking at ego, Elon Musk, who all of a sudden gets all this fan base and it's like, oh, all these people are congratulating me on everything I say. Like they get into their head a little bit um, and it becomes a self-reinforcing information bubble. And all of a sudden we are, we are famous for being famous and we've forgotten what we are actually trying to accomplish. And I think the reason why this ends up getting into this kind of negativity spiral, I I always think of this quote from the journalist, Charlie Warzel, who tweeted this years ago, 2021. I just looked it up and he says, we're always talking about content moderation and such, and that's fine. But the thing I despair about is that absolute fastest way to grow an audience is to jump into a set of toxic, exhausted conversations and stake out a bold position, usually at the expense of somebody else. And he's absolutely right. How many people have we seen get famous for being against something, for having come out and calling someone else out and then all of a sudden everyone's congratulating you and you become you get into this a little bit of a self-reinforcing narrative. I wrote about this a little bit in my book, but I think it's one of the one of the most toxic parts of our inter- internet culture right now. It's great that we are using our megaphones, but we have to remember what we're using them for. Like what's the ultimate goal? I think that the Obama campaign and the person of Obama himself always saw this this being creating an online platform for myself as a means to an end, as a means to do good, as a means to create an audience so that I could activate that audience and have them be out collectively making change. You know, we talked a lot about the we, the like, what are we going to do together? And so the audience, if we were building an audience, if we were showing showcasing photos of Bo the dog or Obama doing BuzzFeed videos, or all of these things that really personalized him. It was always for the goal of building that audience so that we could then talk to them about the serious things that we need their help doing. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. I totally agree too, because I do see that sometimes, especially on private sector, teams are very disjointed. And so marketing is looking at marketing metrics Customer service is looking at customer service metrics. Management is looking at management metrics. But holistically and collectively, having all of those metrics lead up into one singular big goal, which is what is our purpose? What is our mission? And are we achieving it within these different sectors? So I completely agree where there's just that, you know, focus on these vanity metrics that don't ultimately correlate with a larger initiative. However, one might assume that if your overall goal is to create a better world, have more influence, build a following so that you can continue to make these improvements and changes, that there do have to be some of those metrics at that lower level that can roll up into that bigger picture. Sure. What would that look like?
0: I think it's just contextualizing those metrics for what they mean. I mean, you've got your organizational KPIs, right? You've got your team KPIs and then you've got your your you know individual KPIs. So for us, for I'll give you an example, we had obviously the entire Obama organization working toward policy goals. And then we had the digital team that had digital KPIs that really mattered. So like our email list was one of the biggest ones because email was how we fundraised people. It's how we activated people. So even though we had millions and millions of people on our social accounts, an email address was always much more valuable for us. And so part of our KPIs as an email team was, how did we convert some of these social followers, which were much more fickle, much less likely to pay attention, into email subscribers so that we could give them more of what we wanted to talk about exactly when they needed to hear it. So you know we had these overall digital program KPIs that were the most important things, But then we had our social team KPIs that were about account growth, engagement. Are we talking to people about the things that they want to hear when they want to hear them? Are we growing our account? You know, like there's community engagement metrics that really matter to account growth, to like just providing value to, to people who are following. But if we just look at those, then we are missing the bigger picture. Why are we doing this in the first place? What's the point of having these accounts? What, why are we putting content out in the ether just to hear ourselves talk? No, we're doing it for this larger goal of our organization.
1: Couldn't agree more. When it comes to the future of digital content holistically and teams, I would say political and non-political, you know, teams that are going to be building out these structures and having to discern future platforms... Whether or not they are going to end up being in the rotation of content development, whether or not they want to invest in, you know, these different areas, what are some core truths or, you know, really kind of pillars that teams can lean back on when it comes to, you know, really having that discernment about how they're scaling and how they're growing?
0: Some of the ones that I have consistently gone back to are growth as a tactic it's not a goal in and of itself. It's great to grow, but why are you growing? what's the what's the point of of you know capturing that audience, capturing that attention? The other is not everything that is measurable is valuable, and not everything that is valuable can be measured. So one of the essential principles of trying new things and seeing new platforms come along and be like, maybe this is something that would have valuable to us is jumping in way before you know whether or not that thing is valuable. You'll get some indication, especially account growth, some like, you know, some engagement that you might not have gotten elsewhere with a different kind of audience, but usually the early adopters on some of these platforms are in way before they have any kind of sophisticated analytics platform or business teams or like things that are helping you connect it back to the actual business value, right? So, the ones that have The best first mover advantage are the ones that jump in way before you have any of that. Those are the two things that I always go back to. The other is probably just that balance of professionalism in whatever way that that means for you and the personalization and the being human. We've always kind of counseled our clients around about a 70-30 model of like 30% talking about yourself, what you want to talk about, getting your message across, talking about your brand, talking about your company, then 70%. Adding value in some way or another to a conversation that you both care about, to, you know, again, white papers, IP, I don't know what industry, you know, whatever industry, adding value looks like a lot of different things, right? But nobody wants to follow an account that is just constantly talking about itself. It's just boring.
1: It is boring. (laughs) Last question for you. As we're heading into this 2024 political election, everyone that listens to this podcast, many work in marketing, many work in brand side, but also everyone is a voter, essentially, to some degree. We would hope. Uh, we would, we hope would hope. Go register. What peace of mind or what recommendation would you give to these voters who are going to be heading into probably a, a wild election season, especially when it comes to digital media, you know, what's kind of that one piece of advice that you would give to everyone as they're, you know, buckling in for this political season to make the best decision for themselves?
0: Oh, man, the one piece of advice, I have several pieces of advice, probably beyond just the like, make sure that you go vote, of course, which is the most important thing, Make sure you register and make sure you participate in our democracy. I think that we underestimate the power of our own voices and our own platforms constantly. Even if we've only got a few hundred followers on social, which is which is most people, right? Like it's our friends, our family, our coworkers, the people we interact with in real life. Few of us have done the asinine exercise of building an audience like you and I have, both for ourselves and for our brands. Like most people just have their their own little bubbles and it it's totally fine. But even within that, bubble, you have influence. And it is really important. And I think that you have an ethical obligation to use that voice and that platform to do good in the world. And in an election cycle, it means speaking up about the things that are in the media that are already top of mind for people around those issues and around those candidates and being really explicit about, here's what I believe, here's why I'm voting the way that I'm voting. I think that you know we're, we've been talking a lot about the platforms we've been talking a lot about you know what's good and bad about them but we have created a system that depends on each other for information and so we have to use that system imperfect as it is to have agency to move the world in the direction that we want because when we give up that voice when we don't use it when we abstain then you know the status quo kind of wins and campaigns, I know that we talk a lot about the money that that flows into presidential campaigns, especially. It's insane. A lot of that gets spent on staff time and spent on media time, but it's still not enough. I know that sounds crazy, but they're still operating. If you think about across 50 state media markets, even if you just focus on the like swing states, which most of the campaigns are doing at this point with most of their organizing and media buying, it's still not enough. They're still spread super thin right up until election day. And so these campaigns depend on our engagement. They depend on not just our voices online, but our volunteer time and every other way that we you know, feel like it, it, we can give both from a money and a time standpoint. So the very least we can do is use the thing that costs us nothing, which is our voice. That's my appeal.
1: I love it. Caleb, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and for chatting all things digital political. I mean, it is coming in hot and coming in fast. Where (laughs) can people learn from you, support you, follow you? How can they find you online?
0: You can find me at calebgardner.com. You can also buy my book from that website, No Point B. I also just started a podcast with my friend, Adrielle Parker, about the social responsibility of business, something that is uh, adjacent to this conversation called leadership. I don't know if I'm allowed to say on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. This is our problem with naming it something that is, (laughs) we don't know if we can say, but it's a super fun podcast, just kind of a wide ranging conversation about the news that my friend and I, Adrielle, who's a DEI expert have every week and it's super fun. So go, go listen to that as well. Would be, we'd love to have you.
1: Fabulous. Go check out leadership. I'm going to put it on right after we pop off this call. <laughs> Thank you so much, Caleb for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. This has been great. Woo-hoo.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the social complex podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoy this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories. Deep dives and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.